You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Blogging Heads TV. This is Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Ari Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Michael Tracy. Uh, Michael, could you introduce yourself? Hello again, Ari. We meet again. <laughs> uh, I'm a journalist. I contribute to a variety of publications, do some YouTube and podcast work, that sort of thing, all around impresario. Um, so thank you for coming on today, uh, coming back. I think we did we did one about a year ago on uh, kind of Russiagate and maybe it was more like, like 18 months ago. Uh, yeah, it was a year and a half ago, and I've done I've done a couple with Bob uh, in the in the interim. But. Right, um, but our that is not our topic today. Although maybe it is, it will come up in some respects. Uh, our topic today is um, the top. I think those topics are actually intersectional. To use okay, one yeah, of your favorite words. Well, I wanted to say one of my favorite words, but it is yeah a cross cut. Yeah, that's a cross cutting topic that intersects with lots of uh, other things happening in the world. But our our main topic today is uh, let's also Tulsi note RA, Let's also yes. <laughs> Absolutely, but let's also note, Arye, that you almost chickened out of this conversation on account of you not having the stamina to go late into the evening with me on the topic of Tulsi or any other topic, and I shamed you Yes, uh, into it is, proceeding, so blog, I, I take that as a badge of honor. This is blogging is after dark. Uh, <laughs> it is the evening time. Uh, I am uh, going on about five hours of sleep, but I... Uh, rallied with some Coca-Cola and some Lifesavers gummies um, okay. as a sugar boost, so I'm, I'm back and raring to go. Uh, yeah, so I, I got my coffee handy. I'm in my uh, hotel. I'm in New Hampshire where I hear there is an election coming rather soon, so that creates <laughs> the, the ambiance for this conversation. Right. Okay, so the topic is, is Representative Tulsi Gabbard. Um, is it Gabbard or is it Gabbard? It is Gabbard. Okay, Tulsi Gabbard. Um, and she is running for the Democratic nomination for president. Um, you are the person who I follow on Twitter who is um, following Gabbard most closely. And I wouldn't call you a booster, but you are, I think, broadly sympathetic to her perspective. And I'm interested in that. I'm interested in Gabbard um, as a figure. She seems, uh, you know, she doesn't fit into any sort of normal... Uh, category for that uh, the like regular politicians fit into, um, and so I'm interested in uh, her her life story, which I've read a couple profiles of her. You know, she had a, she had an unusual childhood, which maybe we could discuss just a little bit. Um, and uh, yeah, she just she's a unique figure on the scene, and I'm also interested in what you you know what you see in her. So, um, but I guess here's the first question: um, Do you think Tulsi Gabbard? can win the nomination, and does Tulsi Gabbard think that Tulsi Gabbard can win the nomination? <laughs> well, you know, I'm thinking back now to December of 2011, stay with me for a second, when all of a sudden the polls in Iowa for the Republican nominating process that year showed that Ron Paul was in the lead in Iowa. There was a brief moment when Ron Paul was leading the Iowa caucus polls. So that just tells you that there is a lot of a lot of variability in these elections that maybe gets understated or underemphasized. I'm not going to say that Tulsi Gabbard is any kind of favorite to win the Democratic nomination for a whole host of reasons, polling and otherwise, but one reason that I was 
you might say, drawn to her quite early on, even well before she began running for president, was because I always felt that she, given her slightly heterodox sensibility, given that, as you mentioned, she's a little difficult to pigeonhole along typical partisan or ideological lines, I always felt that she would make a bigger impact than maybe people appreciated. And I don't know if that's going to come to fruition in terms of the ultimate polling results, but I will say that she's consistently been overperforming in New Hampshire, at least in the polls. Um, If the DNC actually got its act together and counted a sufficient number of these New Hampshire polls, uh, then she would have qualified for for all the debates, and she's missed two of the six now. Um, And that in part owes to New Hampshire being an open primary where – Republicans, independents, and Democrats can all vote in the primary. There's no restriction on the basis of your party registration, unlike other states. And uh, that's sort of suited to her appeal in a way. Um, Ron Paul, for example, uh, came in second, if I'm remembering correctly. Or he did he did uh, w- uh, rather well in the uh, New Hampshire primary in the two times that he ran. And you have sort of this kind of like anti – establishment attraction to her that transcends typical partisan lines where even though libertarians may not agree with her positions on you know domestic spending or uh, gun control or that kind of thing they find something that's appealing about her broader sensibility and they therefore may be inclined to vote for her in for example the New Hampshire primary so i think she has a possibility of maybe overperforming to some extent mm-hmm. um and either way Uh, making an impact on the race because she said uh, that she intends to remain in the race through to the convention. Um, So she's not going to be one of these Kamala Harris types or uh, even going back further like a Jay Inslee or somebody who drops out at the slightest sign of turmoil. She has a pretty well-developed message and I think she wants to use – The presidential campaign is a vehicle to expound that message for as long as that is available. Mm -hmm. Um, And you – okay, so I believe – And in terms of whether she can win, you know – I I mean, so yeah, that's the – I mean, was she running as a protest candidate or to just raise her profile? As you know, there were like 25 people running originally, I'm sure – there were some of them that didn't think they were actually going to be president someday. Like, was, does she fit into that camp? Or I, was I she in total, it to win it, as Hillary Clinton total, memorably said? I think the total number actually now of people who have run for the Democratic nomination is 28, including the late entrance of Mike Bloomberg and Deval Patrick. Mm-hmm. Forgot uh, about Patrick. So she, I, I mean, everybody forgot about him the day after he entered the race, which probably <laughs> is not a great woman. Um, uh, but... Uh, whether she personally thinks that she can win, you know, I think with with politicians, it's hard to say. Obviously, I'm not her 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 psychotherapist, um, and I'd be a little surprised if she does see a psychotherapist because she has sort of this preternatural Zen like quality about her, mm-hmm. where she just um, travels through the universe without really taking much offense to anything, which maybe owes in part to her like you mentioned, atypical background or meditation practice, whatever. Um, I think I think that you know, she can obviously read the polls in order to um, 
operate a campaign in the current cycle, you've had to be pretty attuned to the polls because they've had a lot of impact on whether you make the debates and right. so on and so forth. Like the DNC, I mean, this is, we should probably have a larger, not you and I necessarily, but there should be a, probably a larger discussion at some point about the extent to which the American political system has become subservient to the polling industry. Like, I don't know why that is set in stone that it should be the case, like where so much of how the primary process unfolds is dictated by like the arbitrary whims of these polling agencies. And that's a conscious decision made by the DNC, and it was a con- conscious decision made by the RNC. So like the central party organizations have decided to delegate such outsized – Authority to these polling firms, but anyway. Yeah, I agree, uh, especially because you know we know that the polling can uh, can be wrong, as even Nate Silver will admit. And you know, most of the polls said Hillary would win, and then there's this whole question of whether the polls are getting worse and worse because who is answering their phone at this point in, in time? Like, is it only like extreme senior citizens who are sitting at home alone and the phone rings? They pick it up. Like, I don't pick up a number if I don't recognize it. So they, so they're they seem like how are they getting young people into these? Sample. So, yeah, I agree. Like the poll- polling is becoming more of a mess than it even was a couple of years ago. And it's gotten so absurd in her case and even in the case, to be fair, of other candidates who haven't qualified for some of these debates when by a variety of metrics they probably ought to have. So Julian Castro would be one um, where you've had situations where, according to the DNC's threshold for what constitutes a qualifying poll, if, say, the threshold is 3% on a given poll and you've gotten 2.4%, so it doesn't round up to 3, that could literally be the difference of like one or two people answering a phone or not well, well, well within the margin of error. I mean that's uh-huh. not even margin of error at that point. That's like margin of – I don't know. Choose your ridiculous hyper, hyperbolic word. I mean the, you know, the margin of error itself is usually around 3 <clears throat> or 4%. So if – you know, if you, the poll – even the, the pollster would say if you have 3% support, it's possible you have 6%, and it's possible you have 0%. Those are like right. equally statistically likely. So yeah, it, the whole the whole system yeah. is, is crazy. But yeah. at the same time, you I mean, see like from the perspective of the DNC, like they don't want a circus. Like the uh, what happened in 2016 uh, on the Republican side was circus-like in some respects because Trump is a circus, you know, circus master kind of figure. And uh, they want to get people who are kind of like uh, crankish types – uh, off off the stage, and they want the people, the kind of people they want to eventually become the nominee. They want them on stage. So that that's well, I mean, the Republican National Committee wasn't wasn't so thrilled about Trump early on either, but he was a consistent polling leader during right, the primary. That's true. So that's there's nothing you could do to like finagle the process to exclude him. I mean, but if if the you know if the RNC had come up with a rule that was like you have to have been a registered Republican and vote in the last five elections or something in order to qualify right. for the debate, then Trump would have been kept off the stage. Trump's off the have, stage, then he can't do his stick, and maybe yeah. he doesn't win. Yeah. You couldn't have contributed financially to Hillary Clinton. <laughs> right. Or, uh, you know, invited <laughs> invited a major, um, you know, one of the uh, a president from the uh, from the opposite party to your uh, latest wedding or so- something along those lines. Uh, may have disqualified Trump. OK, but anyway, so let's let's uh, no for employees of NBC Universal allowed. Right. So. So, yeah, the, the, I mean, the process itself is crooked in 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 multiple ways. So I, I definitely agree with that. Okay, so you, you, you mentioned Ron Paul as uh, just someone in the past who uh, is, was kind of an outsider figure to the party and uh, managed to get some, get a lot of attention if maybe obviously he didn't actually win. Um, and, you know, Gabbard does seem to be playing a Ron Paul like role um, right now. Um, 
as kind of a a critic a critic of the party consensus who's within the party. I mean, uh, Ron Paul was not always a Republican. He ran for president, right, as the Libertarian candidate in like 1980 or something. So he was outside. And and uh, Gabbard, I think, has been a Democrat for you know her entire public career, at least. Um, so yeah, and she obviously has. she's um, you know an elected representative. Um, but what? So is that a fair comparison that she is playing the Ron Paul outsider critic role? And like, what? What do you? What, so what? And what also is her critique of of the Dem- Democratic Party? Well, it's fair in a couple of respects, but there are also some interesting uh, discrepancies in that potential analogy. One being that Tulsi Gabbard, remember, she first came to national notoriety really when she resigned from the DNC in 2016 in protest of how they were conducting that primary to endorse Bernie Sanders. So the fact that she was even a vice chair in the DNC to begin with showed that for a time she was more within the accepted framework of the party than Ron Paul really was. Right. I mean, Ron Paul was always kind of known to be an outsider. He like you wouldn't even try to lobby him to vote for a variety of things. He would be like one of the one or two or three people in the entirety of Congress who didn't vote for like an appropriations bill or something like that. Whereas that wasn't really Tulsi's M.O., most of the time, I think she really did undergo something of a significant transformation in the wake of that 2016 primary where – remember, at that time, there were very, very few members of Congress or people of really any uh, any stature in the political world who had endorsed Bernie Sanders. So it was quite a risk. I think ultimately only one senator, Jeff Merkley of Oregon, ended up endorsing Bernie Sanders and maybe a handful of members of Congress. But there weren't really many, and nobody who, who ended up having his or her career, career essentially derailed by coming out and endorsing Bernie at that time. So I think that sort of um, – propelled her into reevaluating the roles of the party and the extent to which they exert undue influence over agenda setting. But another point on the Ron Paul comparison, because I think this is the extent to which it, do, it is uh, accurate, is that uh, Ron Paul campaigned with a major emphasis on foreign policy. Like that was kind of why he got into the race the first time he ran in 2008 because he was the one Republican who was against the Iraq war and he was against the Bush administration's foreign policy overall, whether Mm -hmm. regards to Iran or anything else. Right. So obviously Ron Paul discussed a whole wide variety of issues, but people knew him principally because of the foreign policy views. And likewise with with Tulsi, obviously she'll talk about anything under the sun. I was just at her event today where she was talking about gun control, money in politics, all kinds of stuff. But fundamentally she sort of predicated her campaign on her foreign policy critique and she sort of figures the rest of her agenda under – into that framework, so under that foreign policy umbrella, because she says we're not spending enough money on you know X, Y, and C, Z like foreign expenditure because we're wasting it in Afghanistan or because of these bloated defense budgets, etc. So that's sort of like the uh, unifying theme of her campaign. And so when you have somebody like Ron Paul and you have somebody like Tulsi whose unifying themes of their respective campaigns is foreign policy, you're going to attract a rather unorthodox coterie of 
supporters. So the, I, I, I covered the Ron Paul campaigns pretty closely uh, in, in 2012 in particular, to some extent 2008, although I was really before – uh, I was a, a journalist, so to say, and you had you would always have like factions of leftists who were like interested in Ron Paul. You had independents who were interested in Ron Paul. You had people who liked him just because they felt like he was authentically giving voice to a political sensibility that otherwise would be entirely ignored. And I think you have a, a similar thing that's transferred onto Tulsi, although it's different because on domestic issues she's. Uh, Largely a progressive Democrat, um, right? So, um, but but overall, I think it, it's unusual for any politician to focus on foreign policy. Right. Most voters don't care about it. They don't prioritize it other than – except if we're in like a war or something. Uh-huh. Uh, most of the time, it's not at the forefront of the agenda. It gets a, you know, a, a pittance of attention at the debates, et cetera. People don't rank it highly when you poll them as to what issues they most are animated by. Um, so when you have a candidate who does kind of do that, um, then I think ju- uh, intuitively you're going to get a – um, abnormal or anomalous uh, collection of people who are intrigued by that that message, and I think that's the extent to which the Ron Paul parallel holds. And also, Ron Paul also said that of the Dem- all the Democratic candidates, he likes Tulsi the best. So there is even almost like a <laughs> more literal crossover there. Uh-huh. So okay, so I mean, so one difference is Ron Paul was a long-standing libertarian ideologue. You know, he published this newsletter. And uh, the newsletter was found to include, like, racist stuff in it, and maybe it was actually written by, like, Murray Rothbard, or <laughs> I can't even remember what this scandal. From. Lou, Lou Rockwell. Lou Rockwell, right. Um, uh, so, but I would call, so, I mean, Paul, in my opinion, is, you know, longstanding libertarian crank. And, um, you know, issues also included, initially, so, I mean, yeah, he was, uh, didn't support uh, foreign adventures uh, in the Middle East, but he also did, you know, was... Uh, probably wanted to abolish uh, Medicare and Medicaid and go back to the gold standard and all this sort of, you know, fringy libertarian stuff. Um, so let, let, let me let me just say something. Okay, but we don't, we don't need like, to get, but we don't need to get it off on it. Like, no, no, I don't want to go. On, I don't want to go to Ron Paul tangent, <laughs> but I noticed you use the word crank there somewhat flippantly, and that's not a term that you'd apply to like an aggressively pro-war politician, presumably. So, like, does. Would would Dick Cheney be termed? Well, I mean, a crank? Crank, you know, crank is, would, is would, would like crank is someone who's like outside the the mainstream. So you know, but it's a pejorative connotation. Yeah, but they're like Douglas Fife, if we remember this uh, horrible person from the State yeah. Department or whatever, the Bush administration. You know, was uh, we wouldn't call him a crank because he was like operating like fully within the the system of you know uh, United States foreign policy, which has a very strong like interventionist bent. Um, and so, you know, there's, there are people who are cranks who can be right sometimes. I'm sure there were people <laughs> crankishly saying that, yeah, the, you know, Jeffrey the, Epstein but, was running a, a pedophile mill. Um, right. And occasionally they're right. But it's, it's like they're, you know, they're outside the, the mainstream. And uh, Dick Cheney uh, was a very b- bad person and continues to be a bad person. But uh, he's a warmonger uh, and he actually had power. The crank also right, but the, the, but, right, but, the, but the fact that you would sort of reflexively or maybe even unthinkingly label Ron Paul or presumably Tulsi a crank – Whereas you wouldn't label Douglas Fife a crank speaks to some kind of maybe underexamined bias in the way that term is used. If you see what I'm saying, okay, I, I think I do. But I, at the same time, like you know, Fife was at the extreme end of the like DC consensus of foreign policy, 
And, you know, I'm sure he got some sinecure somewhere at the Heritage Foundation or a foundation for the defense of democracies or something where he'll be perfectly fine and he'll be uh, writing op-eds for uh, the Wall Street Journal for the rest of his days. Um, like, would you call would you call Newt Gingrich a crank? He, I mean, Newt Gingrich definitely has some crankish tendencies to the stuff about. So crankish know, tendencies, space, but not a crank. See, that's what I'm getting at here. Space like... exploration and, and colonizing Mars and, you know, his famous tweet about uh, the McDonald's quarter pounder or whatever. So, I mean, he, he, like, Newt Gingrich is just a strange person, <laughs> uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and he, I remember, like one of his big messages in 2012 when he ran. I don't know if people remember that, and he happened to win the South Carolina primary, actually. But he was arguing that like the entire U.S. electric grid could be wiped out by like an electromagnetic pulse attack or something. Yes, yeah, the EMP, which is a yeah. little bit of a crankish idea. Oh, for yeah, sure, yeah. papers wouldn't be called a crank in the same way that a Tulsi or a Ron Paul is. So well, I'm just trying to like challenge the <laughs> I premise. Would, I there would say, I mean, Newt obviously Newt was had a very um, powerful. Uh, position as speaker of the house for four or five years before he was drummed out um and basically pursued largely the gop line during that uh period of time but yeah he also is a strange person and um you know just yeah the, the stuff about space exploration and electromagnetic pulses and all sorts of weird shit that he tweets and his strange wife who's you know, tweets photos where they that are heavily edited to, to erase the wrinkles from the faces of these seventy year old uh, people, and she's and, the ambassador of the Vatican or something like. We, we live in strange yeah. times, but um, and, and, and one, one more one more point on Ron Paul, not because I want to go down a Ron Paul tangent, but because I think it actually is relevant to the Tulsi discussion. I bristle when I hear him referred to as a crank, not because I'm a libertarian, which I'm, I am not, and not because I agree with Ron Paul on, on everything, but in two thousand eight and two thousand twelve. He did proffer a foreign policy critique that was sorely needed at the time and which people across the political spectrum appreciated, notwithstanding their disagreements with him on the gold standard or what have you. And in 2012, for example, like Ron Paul was the first politician, believe it or not, or one of the first to express positive sentiments about the Occupy Wall Street movement. I'm actually the one who interviewed him about that. That's why I remember it uh -huh. firsthand. Uh, you know, he would talk about how, you know, the, 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 the racist um, criminal justice system and how the drug war uh, worsens uh, racial disparities in, in the U.S. He had a very strong civil liberties uh, uh, emphasis. Um, and the list goes on. So I, I just don't like how when you use the word crank, all of that seems to get discarded and people focus on like the relatively less consequential aspects of his political persona uh, that they can just like dismiss and by attributing a pejorative label. And I think a similar thing you see happening uh, with with Tulsi, and that's sort of why I follow her more closely than most and and try to at least convey what her political program and sensibility is in a way that's sort of uh, shorn of these dismissive label games, which I don't find to be particularly helpful. Okay, so I would just say, um, you know, uh, Paul is a uh, strong ideologue uh, committed to a strange ideology called libertarianism that if you play it out entails some weird results that probably... 98% of America would reject, but he is like committed to that political program. And probably, you know, if, uh, if, you know, so, if we just <laughs> programmed a computer program to apply the most libertarian policy to any given issue, it would come out with roughly the Ron Paul position. So he's, you know, very pro civil liberties because that's less government uh, against foreign intervention, because that always creates more government. And, uh, but also, you know, is a big fan of, 
uh, Medicare and Medicaid uh, because those are government programs and the gold standard because he doesn't trust the Fed, this giant uh, government behemoth, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, okay, enough Ron Paul. Tulsi, yeah. does Tulsi have yeah. an ideology? She's, no, she's obviously not a libertarian, but she, but she does have seem to have this strong non-interventionist foreign policy. Does that relate to her domestic policy, which, as you said, is seems to basically align with the Democratic mainstream or um, – or or what exactly? I mean, is she just like uh, a, progress- a progressive at home isolationist or non-interventionist, whichever word you want to use, abroad? Um, and what does, does something link the two parts? Well, I mean, I, I think I think you have to sort of understand what her political and personal trajectory was to answer that question. She served in Iraq when she was in her twenties. Right. So that was obviously a formative experience. She was in a medical unit where she was personally treating people uh, who were wounded uh, in what she later ascertained was a totally misbegotten war sold on false pretenses. So there was a signature foreign policy event which sort of um, uh, propelled the creation of her overall worldview. So I wouldn't say that she is a traditional left winger in the sense that she read a bunch of books on left wing political philosophy and decided that she was like a Marxist Leninist or something, like whatever mm-hmm. sectarian or that kind of thing. She more arrived at her sensibility through lived experience, which everybody does in a way, but she wasn't like immersed in theory in a way that like a Bernie Sanders may have been or a Jeremy Corbyn or, or, uh, et cetera. Right. Um, so, so that's why I think she's a little averse to being, um, put into one strict ideological box. One, one way that I've, I've kind of described her is that she is almost like temperamentally moderate, like she has a moderate temperament, I would say, in a way that other politicians do not. And her rhetoric is one often of – that draws on themes of like national unity and um, isn't necessarily a, a, of a kind with a typical left-wing rhetoric, right? Mm-hmm. However, what she espouses in terms of policy – so it's a it's an odd combination, right? So she has this – rhetorical or temperamental uh, temperamental moderation but a lot of what she's espousing in terms of policy or a lot of her like actual political critiques are far outside the mainstream of american politics that you would probably identify partly with the left i mean some right wingers may agree with it um so that's why i think people have a lot of uh difficulty in apprehending what the totality of her political uh, worldview is. Number one, again, because it was informed initially by the foreign policy experience, which I I think if you were – you and I served in Iraq in the circumstances that she did at the age that she did, we might probably have followed a similar trajectory. Um, And also having been in the military, and she still is. I mean she's still a major in the National Guard. I think that sort of instills – a kind of uh, temperamental uh, stoicism in a way that like having come up through like activist movements would not. Right. So, so um, 
so the, like the the synergy of her her sensibilities and her and her political positions is harder to understand than most, but that's why she's interesting. That's why she's intriguing, right? Mm-hmm. So the whole package is why uh, people are drawn to her and why there are constant vociferous debates about her on the internet, which you might have come across from time to time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, she you, drives people you, crazy and, online. And you, yeah. And then you couple that with her, uh, her personal and religious background. Um, remember she comes from Hawaii. Uh, so she was, let's so say like Obama was born in Hawaii, but he didn't like rise through the ranks politically in Hawaii. Whereas she right. did. And Hawaii is like, pretty darn far away from the mainland of the United States newsflash. And so (laughs) that like kind of lends itself to a different uh, approach to politics, maybe than you might find on the mainland. Cause Hawaii has its own idiosyncrasies um, that obviously, honestly, I'm not even that familiar with given that I've never been to Hawaii. It's the only state of the 50 that I have not uh, been to. And so, um, all that kind of combines to just, yeah, create a, 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 a political persona that does drive people up the wall, but uh, conversely attracts people more more than like, you know, name your 27 other Democratic politicians who don't engender that kind of reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, so things that uh, just for people who don't exactly follow her biography, things that make her unique is that she is a Hindu. I think she was the first Hindu elected to Congress. She was, yeah. Um, now a couple others, but she was the first in 2012. And uh, she is uh, uh, of Samoan American ancestry, is that right? Um, yep, she's uh, she's half Samoan, half Caucasian. Right, and um, like we said, she's a military veteran. Um, also, obviously, uh, she's a woman, and uh, just the fact of her being a woman uh, seems to drive people extra crazy. I think you see that in terms of AOC and Hillary Clinton and Sarah Palin and all sorts of stuff. Uh, you know, there's just a layer of misogyny or something that uh, makes people go extra crazy when there's a woman who is prominent in some way. Um, and but then also she is. Uh, I mean, there's all this stuff. There's uh, we'll link to the profile that. Um, uh, Carrie Halley uh, wrote of her dealing, uh, going into her childhood. It was, I don't really want to get into this whole thing, but like um, her family was involved in a religious movement that was not the standard kind of thing that most families were, were probably involved with. Um, and some people question whether she, you know, that makes her, is she's like a sleeper agent or a, a secret conservative or, Something like that, and then uh, there's I. You can probably you have the details on this, I'm sure, but like uh, people have criticized her for uh, saying nice things about um, a Modi, uh, Prime Minister Modi in India, um, and seemingly perhaps just uh, a fellow Hindu uh, endorsing a Hindu nationalist. But uh, you know, uh, Modi has turned out to be doing some pretty nasty things over the past couple of years, and um, you know, does is that. Uh, you know, does that like betray that her her sympathies are you know if it's fine if a Hindu does something bad on the international stage uh, because she's Hindu as well? But you but you maybe you can fill in the details on on that one. But yeah, so I mean she's a, she's a unique figure in on the American political scene. If for pretty much just like one of these things uh, was was, uh, but the fact that she has like. Six unusual characteristics all combined uh, <laughs> yeah. it makes her interesting yeah, and so, also like, uh, like kind of a lightning rod and makes people crazy. Yeah. And also, 
it's always going to drive people crazy in a variety of directions when, again, you sort of predicate your entire candidacy on a foreign policy critique because foreign policy doesn't fall within the same partisan confines as issues of like taxation or of uh, just domestic uh, expenditure. Um, it, it always creates, quote unquote, strange bedfellows. Right. So if that is sort of the axis on which her campaign rests then that just doesn't neatly transfer into the typical way in which you kind of understand the party dichotomies. Um, yeah, on the issue of her background, I thought Carrie Howley's piece was actually pretty good and empathetic. I don't think that Tulsi liked it much mm-hmm. um, because she has a, a sensitivity to what she's at times called religious bigotry. Not unfounded because often you'll have people accusing her of being a member of a cult, um, which I don't think there's a legitimate grounds for. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't see her getting – like be, being the first Hindu ever elected to Congress is kind of like a significant historical achievement. And yet she never gets like any credit for that in the sense that it doesn't entitle to her, her to any like identity points, right. meaning – Making people wary of being, you know, flippant about how they characterize her religious background, um, because or or use uh, describing her religious identity in a demeaning way, um, that just never really applies to her in a weird way. I think because like, people think people have other political problems with her, so they're not willing to like extend her that latitude in terms of what quote unquote identity points. The Hindu background would confer, uh-huh. right, and, and that also obviously um, intersects with her identity as a woman, and also uh, as an ethnic minority, which be- people also just blithely gloss over because, again, they don't like her for other political reasons. Right. So, and I mean, it's also I think part of it is like, you know, I, I how many Samoan Americans are there like in that are in the public eye? Like, there's The Rock. And uh, Dwayne Johnson there, and there's her, and maybe one or two other people I can think of. And also, how many prominent Hindus are there? Not just The Rock. You have the entire Samoan wrestling dynasty. So I can name (laughs) you some other prominent wrestlers, such as Rikishi Fatu. Um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson's father was a prominent wrestler. But yeah, and you have like uh, uh, Monty Teo, I believe. Oh, right. Yes, yes. The uh, quarterback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy. Um, Yeah. It's a minority. Yeah, know, so. obviously, like, yeah, it's literally a minority. There's not that many Samoan Americans out there. And um, I'm sure, you know, how, like how many, like where does the number of Hindus rank? I'm, sure, I'm guessing there's more, you know, Jews in America than Hindus, even though there's, you know, a billion <laughs> Hindus in the world or something like that. By the way, she may be the front runner in the American Samoa caucus. And there is a caucus in American right. Samoa yes. for the primaries. Donald Trump actually won it in 2016. Interesting. Or not. Um, so, yeah, you got to pick up those delegates. Uh, and who knows? Maybe maybe the delegate will, will actually matter this uh, this year. <laughs> it usually doesn't. It well may. So, yeah. So, so she doesn't fit into these boxes because people don't know how to categorize her. I mean, she like her, she looks like a white woman, like in the just plain sense. Um, but you know, she also, we know she has, so, 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 I mean, this is actually sort of interesting. You, you look at her and if you didn't know anything about like her genetic composition, you would just assume that she's white. Yeah. I think, I think I would maybe, maybe Hispanic. I mean, you know, this is like an ugly way to talk, but, um, you know, she doesn't look like she doesn't look ethnic. Um, Really, and, and she's she also, looks sort of like I would say, be ambiguously ethnic. 
Okay, and and maybe in the way Dwayne the Rock Johnson, you know, you're like, what what is what is he exactly? Um, but but also like she's also attractive, and I think that's that plays into it too. Like AOC is attractive, Sarah Palin attractive more or less, um, and that also drives people crazy when there's an attractive woman who is like doing something that's not just you know being a supermodel or something. Um, yeah. So like I'm not going to comment on her attraction <laughs> attractiveness level just for my own sake mm-hmm. um but but one thing that really does annoy me greatly is that whenever i discuss her online and I'm, of course people are always going to say bonkers things online but inevitably you'll have people who want to attribute so i going back well before tulsi was ever on the national scene always and i've talked about this with bob Wright, always fancied myself a foreign policy voter because there are almost none in the U.S. So I figure you that and Bob I, Wright are the two right. foreign policy voters. Yeah, yeah we have we formed a <laughs> caucus with the population of two, um, uh, and so she has a foreign policy centric campaign. Unusual, right? And but people always want to insinuate or even sometimes outright allege the only reason why a male, which I am could be attracted to her in the sense of having a political uh, symmetry uh, are, are are drawn to her because of her, her looks, which I find to be sexist in like a classical sense, mm-hmm. not sexist toward her necessarily, but sexist more broadly in, ter- in terms of kind of like minimizing and attempting to, you know, just kind of crudely diminish the nature of her support. It, of course, whitewashes the females who support her. Um, and uh, and I find that just to be a very annoying recurring theme that I, I constantly uh, come across. And I feel like that's something that you know Democrats would probably be more attuned to and more sensitive about and even react negatively in response to if Tulsi didn't pose what they view to be political problems for them. So like they kind of compartmentalize where that doesn't – that type of thing doesn't really bother them in relation to Tulsi, whereas it would in the case of like a Kamala Harris or something, right? Um, and and so that is just one of the many reasons why uh, I think Tulsi sort of punctures through some of the inconsistencies in like the prevailing left liberal uh, worldview, at least in terms of how they – uh, deal with the Democratic Party and the prominent figures within the Democratic Party. Like her very presence, I think, exposes some of the ways in which the ideals they espouse don't actually match up to reality in lots of ways. Yeah, I I basically agree with that. And I mean, I think I I think I've said this on the show before. I mean, my perspective is kind of the cynical, like materialist one, which is that I mean, there aren't a ton of people who operate. On like uh, they have uh, abstract ideals and they're trying to match their lives to these abstract ideals. Uh, usually, it's like they have some interest, a material interest or something, uh, and then they kind of like come up with a post facto reason <laughs> why the thing that they wanted to do is the moral thing to do or whatever. So the people who you know don't like Tulsi for whatever reason, you know, forget about their uh, commitment to you know, uh, supporting women or, you know, celebrating the ethnic diversity of America or or something like that (laughs) when it comes to her. But then maybe the next, like a week later, they'll come back to that. I think that's just like a human trait that we're more, you know, we're, we're, so if, if I like, you know, if I was in 2016, if I liked Bernie more than I was, you know, uh, arguing about the 
like how unfair the DNC was was being to him or something. And if I like Hillary more, I was I came up with the opposite conclusion. And you know, he switches the two people, and the arguments would switch. Uh, so that's how yes. I think most people generally yeah. operate. And, and by the way, if you're a partisan Democrat, I think there are a variety of reasons why you'd be uh, justified in disliking Tulsi. So. I could just name a couple. She <laughs> basically went on a debate stage and called the entire Democratic Party corrupt and rotten. Mm-hmm. And she uh, got into like a month long vicious row, to use the UK phrase. I've been following uh, election coverage since the UK election, so I've kind <laughs> of like picked up some of the nomenclature. Mm-hmm. Um, she got into like a furious row with the previous nominee of the Democratic Party um, and called her. Like uh, the personification of warmongering and again, rot. Um, Like we talked about before, she resigned from the Democratic Party at a key moment where everybody thought that the party had to coalesce around the singular objective of defeating Trump. She kind of interrupted that in a small way. Um, uh, She uh, uh, doesn't buy into Russiagate, which does animate. A certain section of the Democratic Party, especially yeah. if you have a lot of uh, too much time on your hands to watch cable news. Yes. Um, and and the list goes on. So I think there are a whole host of reasons why you would be uh, warranted in not liking her in terms of what she represents politically. But then just be frank about that and don't dress it up in these identity concerns or pretend that you apply your identity uh, analysis equitably, just uh, honestly, uh, you know, confide that the way in which you dole out your identity points um, is dependent on the political orientation of the figure in question, rather than suggesting that it's kind of like this objective ideal that you uh, that you apply. Yeah. Well, people aren't going to do that, so, <laughs> no, <laughs> so don't, don't hold your breath on that one. Um, okay, so okay, so, well, if, if she, so if twenty sixteen and how. Bernie Sanders was treated by the DNC was like the radicalizing event for her. Why did why did she decide to run for president herself instead of becoming like the chief surrogate for for Bernie? And then you can imagine her like being the vice presidential pick uh, to balance the ticket in terms of uh, gender, <laughs> religion, and age. Um, you know why why run herself? Also, I did mention this. You know, I think the last the last uh, House of Representatives member who ascended to the presidency was John Quincy Adams. I may have that wrong, but I think there's only been one. Obviously, Trump has Abraham changed Lincoln, but he but he was um he was not he was out of um he was not in uh, Congress when he ran for president. Um, was he? Was he not? Okay. Well, ran, I mean, the highest the highest federal office that he held was yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. He ran, you know he ran for Senate in 1858. But anyway, very okay. It's very unusual for someone to go from the House. To the presidency, it's happened two or fewer times. Yeah, it's also unusual for a reality TV star to. Yeah, so I mean, the part of it is that Trump has scrambled the game and showed that like you just all you need is like a lot of media attention and maybe some other stuff, and you know you can you can in a freak occurrence <laughs> become elected president. But yeah, why do you think why didn't she just become the number one Bernie supporter and travel the country barnstorming for Bernie? And why did she want to run herself? And how, oh, and how, and how is her policy you, platform? Do you think she would have gotten more exposure for her ideas if she decided a year ago to just become a Bernie surrogate or would she yeah, gotten more exposure I mean, I if she ran president on her I mean, own well, terms? Obviously, we're talking about her right now. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's worked in that respect. But, um, you know, in terms, and also, I mean, in terms of like getting her ideas implemented in the party, I, I don't know. I don't know whether she's 
she's helped that if she like pisses everyone off because you know there's a number of people who see themselves as tried and true democrats and then if she's like you know the party is corrupt top to bottom then they're like well i don't need to listen to this lady anymore um whereas if she had you know worked within the system or something you know there's a there would have been an alternate path uh to do that i think well i think that she believed that she had a unique set of emphases that maybe are different in ways from Bernie also different a different ideological tendency like I said she's not really in any uh overt sense a socialist in the same way that Bernie is mm-hmm. uh, so she has a different approach to discussing issues rhetorically and otherwise you know I think that her endorsement of Bernie was actually a great asset to Bernie in 2016, so much so that the Bernie campaign chose her to enter his name into nomination at the 2016 convention, which is like the highest profile surrogate role that you can really have at a convention on behalf of a, a candidate. Um, uh, so her not necessarily approaching every single issue from the same direction, so to say, as Bernie is good if you want to kind of create a coalition of diversified support. Um, but, but I mean, I think it just boils down to that she felt that she had a unique set of life experiences. She felt that she had a unique um, uh, set of emphases. Uh, you know, before 2016, Bernie uh, was uh, – before this cycle, rather, Bernie was not really known to have much of a focus on foreign policy. Right. Um, he kind of uh, shifted that to some degree, I think laudably, between the 2016 and the current campaign uh, on issues like Yemen, Saudi Arabia, and so forth. But but that was always her wheelhouse. Um so uh, I felt like, but so I think she reasonably uh, inferred that she could provide something uh, different to to Bernie, and also I mean I thought also think I, I've heard like when there there are times when if you follow the online discussion of her, it's been theorized that she's like angling for a vice presidential nomination. I think if she were offered that, she'd probably accept it because like why wouldn't you? If especially if your motive is to get as big a flat platform as possible to espouse and implement your ideas. But like that, it seems incredibly far-fetched to me for countless reasons. Some of which we've touched on her uh, religious background. I don't, I think if it were like fully delved into to the extent that would be necessary, if she were vetted to be vice president uh, would probably raise quote unquote red flags, at least in terms of like, at least in the eyes of like the Democratic Party functionaries who are going to be presiding over a vice presidential presidential vetting for a Biden or a, probably even a Bernie or whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a Jew, a Jew, and like a defends Hindu. Julian, she like she defends Julian Assange pretty aggressively. I just say a, a Jew and a Hindu on the ticket. I think it's a great remarkable. thing to probably unite the Democratic Party at this point. Um, and uh, even just even just saying. Hey, I don't think Robert Mueller established that Trump colluded with Russia is probably like a non-starter for anybody who's going to be in charge of a vice presidential vetting process. So I just don't think you know her um, her actions uh, really match up with a burning desire to be brought into the vice presidential fold. Okay, so so two questions, and maybe maybe these can be the final two questions, or, or but we can keep going if they are if they spark further discussion. First one, the, uh, the, the, the question about Modi and India, 
and her her views uh, towards you know uh, Hindutva or however you pronounce that this Hindu nationalism that uh, seems very disturbing from the American perspective, but also I know very little about India. And um, the other conspiracy theory uh, about uh, Tulsi is that she's a kind of you know secret agent from the Trump campaign, and she's uh, at any moment she will like renounce her support of uh, the Democratic Party or whoever the nominee is, and she will endorse Trump. Um, and, uh, you see that talked about a lot. That seems, uh, pretty far-fetched to me, but, uh, who knows? Uh, so, yeah, what do you think about those two questions? Uh, Let me take the second one, uh, first. I would like to see what, on what grounds people genuinely believe that to be the case, because if you actually go to her events and listen to her speak, over and over again, she talks about the need to defeat Trump, and I don't think Trump is like super happy about people running around proclaiming about how urgent it is that he be defeated. Um, She's accused him of being, quote, the bitch of Saudi Arabia. Uh, She has denounced him for uh, behaving imperialistically on the world stage with regard to Syria. Uh, In particular, she's actually used that word. Um, She criticizes Trump constantly. She just doesn't criticize him in the same terms as the dominant uh, – in terms of how like the dominant sensibility in the Democratic Party would. Uh So it's like less shrill I would say than your average Democrat. It's less focused on like the day-to-day Trump outrages. Um, And I would think – and I would say actually in that way it's more penetrating or it's more adroit uh, uh, in terms of its its resonance because she's not – she actually criticizes him on substantive grounds and she doesn't get drawn into like the culture war over Trump so much. And I think that's actually a more effective means by which to criticize Trump. Um, even when she voted present on this impeachment vote – uh, earlier this month, she made sure to couple that with an expression of determination that Trump be defeated, and she thought that the impeachment mechanism was counterproductive in achieving that goal. Um, she uh, also simultaneously introduced a censor resolution, which was basically an implicit critique of the whole impeachment process because – She's saying, look, we kind of got the whole country wrapped up into this impeachment fiasco, and we're saying that Trump abused power. Okay, perhaps maybe he did, but here's about six other instances of Trump abusing power, which were never even contemplated as viable uh, offenses on which to impeach him. And what does that say about our political system, and what does that say about the priorities that the people in power – uh, tend to put at the fore. Um, and I think that ultimately is going to be a more um, – a, a better uh, angle f- uh, from which to oppose Trump than to get constantly uh, Im- uh, wrapped up in all these fleeting Trump controversies that don't ever really amount to much, mm-hmm. whether it's Russiagate, whether this it's this impeachment thing, whether it's a thousand other things that probably we can't even remember at this point because there have been so many of them. Um, and so, you know, in addition to that, 
her being a stealth right winger, I mean, in order to like be a secret Trump agent, she would pro- presumably have to be on the right in some meaningful sense. And, you know, I've, I've, I'm pretty familiar with her at this point. Um, and, you know, I've, I've had long discussions with her, one of, including a long podcast that people can look up on YouTube if they want. We, well, we can and, include the link to that one okay. uh, below this. Uh, and I've never heard her say anything that I would characterize as meaningfully right wing. Like she's one of the few remaining candidates who still uh, is promoting single payer health care, for example. Mm-hmm. Most other candidates other than Bernie have transitioned away from that. Now, she doesn't speak about single payer in quite the same terms as Bernie. She's saying we want a single payer system that is analogous to what they have in Australia, uh, which does allow for some uh, private coverage. Whereas Bernie is more like of a Canada model, which is like, okay, you can debate whether Australia or Canada have the ideal models, but mm-hmm. they're still like light years beyond what the US healthcare system is in terms of government intervention. Um, you know, again, call, uh, she constantly talks about how, you know, the CIA has been intervening maliciously in both U.S. and uh, and foreign affairs for decades. She said to NPR over the summer that she doesn't believe that any U.S. intervention since World War II was, was uh, justified. Huh. And, um, you know, I, I don't find any of those beliefs to be right wing. I mean, she went on – people got – freaked out when she went on the the Dave Rubin podcast and I don't really like Dave Rubin and I've criticized him before for many things but if you actually listen to what she said on that she made a case for gun control she made a case for abortion rights she speaks in a language uh, that I think is intelligible to the right in a way that most Democrats are not capable of I would partially exclude Bernie from that I think he is more capable of that than most um and and that's part of the reason why, for example, Dennis Kucinich just endorsed her. Um, Kucinich, who I also did a podcast with uh, uh, over the summer, uh, in part talking about Tulsi, said that – and I think he crystallized it when he put it this way. He said that she can communicate democratic values in a way that Republicans can understand. And I think in most circumstances, that would be lauded as a valuable political skill. Uh, but in her case, again, because of these – the whole constellation of other political problems that people have with her, it's treated as a liability or a marker of evil or something conspiratorial or mysterious um, rather than something that ought to – you'd think be be celebrated. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to note for the record that Dave Rubin blocked me on Twitter because I called him a moron. Um, but uh, uh, the, getting to the question of um, Modi and, and India um, – uh, what is what is what is that like controversy and is it is that a legit controversy? Okay, well, again, first Hindu elected to Congress, she was in the Indian American Caucus Affairs Caucus, something along those lines, for the majority of her tenure. So that entailed her getting to know, to meeting with Tulsi and uh, meeting with Modi in various diplomatic contexts. And often when you meet world leaders in diplomatic contexts, it entails exchanging pleasantries mm-hmm. or diplomatic, uh, you know, uh, exchanges of praise, let's say. Um, and I think people have twisted that into this idea that she is herself a Hindu nationalist. First of all, the actual Hindu nationalists that exist in India 
would view her as an apostate because the uh, Hare Krishna, you know, sect, which is like she's a member of an offshoot of that, uh-huh. is not seen as like authentic Hindu nationalism in India. So like there's all automatically sort of a discrepancy there. Obviously, when you're the first Hindu elected to Congress, you're going to probably att- receive some attention from Hindu Americans across the country who want to support you. Um, most of whom are democratic, by the way, and uh, but also have, if not a positive view of the current Indian government, want to see a positive relationship cultivated between the U.S. government and India. I mean, Barack Obama did this. He Barack Obama wrote a blurb for Time magazine where they right. kind of like list the most influential people in the world or whatever and like sang the praises of Modi and nobody ever said that oh Obama must be some kind of stealth Hindu nationalist. So I think Tulsi is right to bristle when people automatically kind of ascribe to her this deep seated Hindu nationalism on account of her relations with with Modi. Now are there legitimate criticisms of Modi? Absolutely. Um uh, would it be better if she were uh, more vocal about describing those legitimate criticisms at times? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but then again, why is it incumbent on her to do that if not for the fact that she is Hindu? I mean do you see like any other candidate who spends a lot of time talking about – Modi and the well, problem. I mean, I guess the, the parallel would be Jewish politicians in Israel. Um, you know, there's not because there's not so many other, uh, you know, uh, states out there that are like kind of understood to be uh, majority religion acts. Although, you know, the whole thing in India is that uh, it was founded as a, a multi, uh, you know, multi religious, multi ethnic state, and Modi seems to want to make it a Hindu a Hindu state. Um, so. I don't know. The, the the asking. I think the asking of questions does does make sense. I mean, it's also just that, like like I said, you know, there's not that many Hindus in America comparatively to other uh, religious groups, and uh, it, people probably I like I barely understand the Hindu religion, and so the average yeah. Like one thing that bothers me when you have all. like when you have uh, these sort of blithe characterizations of Modi. Not that I'm supporting or defending Modi, which I'm not, but you know. I almost I find that like the pundit class in the United States has difficulty competently uh, comprehending the political dynamics of like Pennsylvania. <laughs> right. So when they like authoritatively pronounce on India, I'm automatically going to be a little skeptical and probably caution against making any kind of brash generalizations, right? Um and I find like when when they if you have a serious criticism of Tulsi vis-a-vis Modi, okay, fine. Uh, but if this is the first time you've ever really discussed Modi in relation to like the U.S., then I'm going to kind of question whether you're making that criticism in good faith, you know, or is it just sort of this cheap trick to 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 uh, to, to criticize Tulsi, of, of which there are many in, in terms of cheap tricks. Like, so reason why a lot of her supporters get defensive online about her is because she really is loathed by much of the media. Um, uh, she doesn't have a lot of defenders in the media who can like effectively convey what her political orientation is. So there is this sense that she's under kind of 
all-consuming attack constantly, and therefore people uh, get, again, defensive when they feel like a criticism has been proffered just in service of, of tearing her down. Um, like, I mean, do you, do you see anybody who's really in, in, of any prominence other than myself? And I'm not even prominent who has like even attempted to counteract some of the main criticisms of her in a rational way. I mean, I haven't. No, no, I don't. I, I would say you're the main person in, uh, I mean, you have that I've seen in media, you know, trying so to, it's, like, it's all, it's all, yeah. Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi have done it at times. So it's all like. It's like our little group of ostracized anti-Russiagate people who are the only ones like who have even bothered right. trying. And um, and uh, Glenn Grinnell, if you're, you're listening, uh, he also blocked me on Twitter because I said he wasn't a real journalist. Glenn, I'm sorry. If you could unblock me, that would be appreciated. Oh, but, did you? OK, <laughs> I'll uh, I'll relay the message to him. Uh, he's very he's a very forgiving. And yeah, I mean, he's uh, obviously he has a lot of stuff going on in his life right now, so he doesn't need to concern himself with this. Uh, I just say there's an article that I'm actually slowly reading in The New Yorker from the, with, that was published in the last month or so about. Modi in India, focusing on a uh, Muslim, young Muslim female journalist who was investigating uh, Modi's uh, party, and um, he does seem to have done some uh, very bad stuff, in, uh, especially in before he became president, when he was kind of like the regional governor uh, of, you know, like encouraging, encouraging um, you know, massacres of Muslims. Um, and I'll, we'll include a link to that to that story. Um, so I, maybe, yeah, maybe but, the- but before, I, before I forget, like another thing that just really puts into uh, disrepute this idea that she's a stealth right winger, which of course nobody ever talks about because they have this sort of caricature version of her that they use in their, their kind of mainstream narratives is she kind of introduced the green new deal before it was the green new deal. Like she put out, she uh, co-sponsored a bill or, or she authored a bill that would remove uh, America from any fossil fuel dependency in like 10 years or something, uh, which is like, how is that? Or do you, you find a lot of right wingers who are really in favor of that kind of thing? I mean, she did that as a member of the House Progressive Caucus of which she's been a member since she joined. So it's just like I, I feel like a lot of this discussion of her is very impoverished. And I think it intentionally omits much of what. Uh, she she stands for like a lot of people dwell on the fact that she goes on Fox News occasionally as have I as a Glenn Greenwald right so we kind of know the tenor of so that. I, I, the four one. people discussed in this conversation I am the only one uh, maybe me and Modi are the only ones who have not appeared on Fox News so any Fox News bookers okay. who are listening to this so. well I'll, I'll try to wrangle an invitation for you okay. um, but I mean I mean it totally neglects that she's one of the few candidates who has really done. Uh, uh, made the rounds on like independent progressive media, which is why you get a lot of pretty fervent online support for her in a, in a way, like uh, pretty obscure YouTube channels, right? This sort of mimics what Ron Paul did earlier on in his first campaign in, in 08, where he would go to independent media, where he didn't, he felt like he would get a fair hearing. Um, uh, you know, the Jimmy, she's like a longtime Jimmy Dore guest. For has, example, she, has she been on Rogan? Kurtz. In this cycle, she has been. Uh, she has been on. Yeah, R- Rogan is another big one. R- Joe Rogan actually endorsed her. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's yeah. she's been. On, she's been on Joe Rogan a total of three times, twice during the campaign. The first time when she was on in September of 2018 was actually the first time that Joe Rogan ever had a sitting politician on ever. Hmm. Um, he had he had Gary Johnson on during the 2016 campaign, but Gary Johnson didn't hold elected office at that point. Okay. Um, uh, you know, he's been on, you know, the Ro- she's done like Rolling Stones. She's done all kinds of stuff. 
uh, you know, my podcast to put another plug. And I feel like all that just gets ignored because they, they something there's something about this notion of her being a stealth right winger or a stealth Trump supporter or something that is like emotionally gratifying to people. I actually wrote a column about this a couple like a month or so ago for uh, for Real Clear Politics, which, which we can link to it. Uh, I mean, I think people like to erect the specter of her as this spoiler potentially because it's a it's a mechanism for enforcing conformity it's a mechanism for saying if you deviate from these preordained uh, uh strictures in terms of how a democrat must behave then you're a spoiler and you have to be destroyed essentially um so it's 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 a way to kind of police the political discourse um and so that 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 I feel is uh, animating a lot of the resentment toward her. Obviously, the impeachment vote was a pretty significant vote, only the third time in history that a president has been impeached, and she voted president not because she wanted to absolve Trump from his conduct. She was clear that she believes Trump did commit wrongdoing, but because she felt that the process was was so flawed that it couldn't impose accountability on Trump in the way that she believes is most appropriate. So, I mean, so the, I mean, the list goes on, but as you could tell by this now hour plus conversation, there's a lot that's interesting about her that doesn't get unpacked in a way that I find rational. So um, that's why I've, I've decided to focus on her in the way that I have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's make this the last question. So, you know, uh, the American foreign policy since, uh, 2001 has been almost entirely focused on the Middle East, and um, you could probably make the argument that every single uh, way that we've intervened uh, since then has been a disaster in some form. Um, so saying, well, you know, we should just get out of the Middle East and uh, certainly not invade another country there ever again, and uh, should also, you know, limit our involvement as much as you know as much as much as possible, or just have no involvement at all and. You know, if if Syrians are killing each other, then, you know, that's a really unfortunate thing. But like our involvement is going to is just going to make things worse eventually. Um, So I think that's uh, a a rational argument that that one can make. Um, You know, foreign policy is more than just the Middle East. Uh, There's a lot of other shit that's happening in the world. Uh, What is like how would you describe her foreign policy in thinking about uh, Europe? Uh, uh, You know, Brexit is one thing, but also just like, you know, we, we used to be more focused on, uh, things happening in, you know, first world countries or whatever. Um, and not just, uh, all the crazy shit happening in the Middle East. So how would you characterize her broader policy, foreign policy outside? Middle East? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question, actually. I mean, I'll throw a couple of examples out there that I think illustrate what her orientation is, uh, she was only one of two candidates, the other being Bernie, who described what happened in Bolivia as a coup. Um, so that was extremely notable. Others like tried to finesse how they described it, like Elizabeth Warren, to the point of absurdity. Um, in terms of Europe, I mean, actually, having just emerged from uh, uh, quite a, uh, a fixation on my part on the UK election – I do, I do think back to an event that she had in New York City actually in June, I think, uh, when she was asked a question about Brexit, believe it or not. And what she recommended was, I think, pretty sensible, yet seemed to be above the pay grade of many British politicians, namely in the Labor Party. 
um, which is she said, yeah, I mean, I think that they approved that Brexit referendum in 2016 and therefore the will of the people ought to be honored. Jeremy Corbyn and the Labor Party included a pledge to honor the result of the Brexit referendum in their 2017 manifesto and they defied all odds and actually won more seats that election than anybody anticipated. And the only really thing that changed from 2017 to 2019 is that they removed that pledge and were basically promising a second referendum on Brexit, which would have just prolonged the entire Brexit drama for at least another six months to a year, maybe more. And the result, predictably, was that some of the most longstanding labor strongholds in the north of England and the Midlands ended up voting for the Boris Johnson-led Conservative Party, like the most car- like cartoonish version of like a posh uh, uh, conservative striver type that you could possibly imagine. Um, uh, in some cases, they voted conservative for the first time ever since the constituency was founded uh-huh. over 100 years ago. Um, and so – you know, I think that plays into her thinking in a way on impeachment. And I've made this point. Actually, I shouldn't maybe I shouldn't reveal this, but I tweeted a point along these lines and Donald Trump retweeted it, um, which was a mark of shame. I, I apologize. Uh, but what I said was and I stand by the point. I don't care if Trump like does he follow you or how did he it. how do you think it came to his attention? He doesn't follow me. I, I don't know. I mean, I think he has some social media workers or something it's obviously not him all the time i think well i mean i I think what they do what they do is that they find tweets that like have gotten some agro algorithmic currency and they print them out yes they they hand him a stack of printouts and he writes on the black sharpie (laughs) yeah yeah he takes his sharpie and he gives it a check mark or something and then they go and retweet it that that Uh, sounds right yeah I, like, but it was weird. Like, obviously, some people noticed when that happened, but it was like in the middle of the night, and he was like on, on some kind of manic episode, and he had just been impeached a couple hours before, so like he kind of got lost in the fray, thankfully. Um, but uh, you know, in, impeachment, even if it is a constitutionally prescribed pro, uh, procedure, right? I think it still inescapably creates the perception in much of the public, especially if you don't even if you don't achieve anything even remotely approaching. A national consensus, which is not the case with Nixon, right? Remember, Nixon resigned because a group of Republican senators went to the White House and said, Richard Nixon, you are going to be impeached and then probably convicted because public opinion has shifted. Your wrongdoing is more widely understood and therefore you need to withdraw from office, which he did. Um, So it's not like there's no precedent for that ever happening. Um, I think when you have a strictly partisan impeachment, and you know the only defectors were Democrats actually in the impeachment vote. Tulsi voted president, and then there were uh, three who voted against the impeachment articles. Uh, then inevitably, it's going to create a perception that you're overturning the election, not literally overturning it. I mean, the 2016 election will always have happened, right? But you're still kind of creating this uh, idea that the will of the people is being overturned. And that could embolden Trump's base in a way that is not 
productive, right? And I think there's there's a there's a parallel to be drawn there uh, with Brexit. I think you know the Labour Party could have very conceivably won if they had changed their Brexit uh, strategy and at least even just kept it in line with what they did two and a half years ago. Um, so I mean that's an example in terms of how she in terms of Brexit. I mean another big one is is Russia, right? I mean she's against the new Cold War. She makes that a central theme of her campaign. It's part of the reason why she was one of the astronomically few people with any prominence in the Democratic Party who were at least skeptical of aspects of the whole Russiagate saga, right? Um, she felt that it was increasing tensions um, for not particularly good reasons empirically. And and so, you know, that's something that she's definitely uh, focused on. She's somebody uh, – she, she, she gives – she talks about – the threat of nuclear war quite a bit. You know, I, I tweeted about this maybe a week or two ago, but it confounds me or maybe it doesn't confound me, but it does draw my ire in a way that you have somebody like Mikhail Gorbachev, right, who in the 80s was almost seen in the United States as a national hero. He was feted by Ronald Reagan. He was seen as somebody who brought about the dissolution of the Soviet Union, rightly, and he was seen as this, you know, very sagacious figure whose pronouncements we should respect and his warnings about the state of affairs between the, the U.S. and Russia have gotten increasingly dire over the years to the point that he thinks he, – he constantly is giving interviews now and he's like 88 or something. But he's still out there writing columns and giving interviews warning about how – the United States and and the and Russia seem to be on this ineluctable crash course that could possibly result in nuclear war, um, and that's something that she she talks about quite a bit. Um, so you know, those are a couple examples of where I think she's saying something that you know those aren't issues that probably Bernie Sanders, for example, would emphasize over the course of a campaign, and she is, and I think that that alone justifies why she chose to run. In addition to Bernie, uh -huh. um, and then you know, there, there are others. I mean, I think she uh, she was one of the few to sort of uh, more or less endorse Trump's approach to to North Korea. Not in every way. Um, she's somebody who just on a more uh, 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 she's criticized like the foreign policy establishment as a whole. So she talked about this confluence between neoconservatives and neoliberals in terms of how they dictate the foreign policy. Agenda and how you need somebody who's coming at it from an independent standpoint who can override those people. Um, uh, and yeah, I, mean, I think the and the, the list goes on. Uh, but I think that maybe gives something of an insight into how she thinks about issues other than the, the Middle East. But like the Middle East has sucked trillions of dollars out of the United States Treasury for the past – 19 years, so it's not entirely unwarranted to at least make that something of a focus. No, I I, I agree, and but um, yeah, it just uh, it, it it becomes all consuming uh, for a. By the way, in terms of by the way, I mean, maybe we we could finish here, but like in terms of Syria, right? Part of the genesis in terms of why she gets such hostile coverage is that before she ran for president, well before, she called into question some of the intelligence that led to Donald Trump. Illegally bombing Syria on two occasions, right? And those that was one of the very few, uh, one of the very rare moments where Donald Trump was celebrated by the Democrats and by the media 
as behaving very presidentially. Like when when Trump drops bombs, yeah, it's seen, yeah. seen as presidential. When he cracks a joke on Twitter, it's seen as like the end of democracy or something. But she said, hey, actually Trump bombing Syria on um, what doesn't seem to at least be anywhere near settled intelligence is probably a bad idea. And now we have these um, leaks from the OPCW, which show that at least there was internal disputation about the findings in terms of uh, that body, which is the uh, chemical weapons investigation body that went to Syria to try to determine whether the who committed the chemical weapons attack that precipitated those two bombings in 2017 and 2018 and there's now we have documents showing that internally within that uh, entity there was conflict in terms of some scientists saying that this does not look to have been by the Assad government. Um, so Tulsi in really in a way has been vindicated on that skepticism she expressed contemporaneously but nonetheless it kind of uh, factors into – the sort of origin story in terms of why she came to be so loath because she was departing from consensus on that uh, issue in particular. And yeah, every, you know, every, constantly she gets accused of being the Assad puppet or, or whatever. That's sort of one of the most trite, one of the more trite. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I don't, that, I mean, that gets, doesn't, gets invo- it gets invoked every time she gets in kind of like a conflict with a rival candidate. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it makes, it, that makes no sense, but, um, Okay, so I guess I, I, I'll just we, – obviously we are at the end of our time and don't have time to uh, debate impeachment, but I would just uh, note for the record, I, I do think it does make strategic sense to impeach Trump now uh, worth risking the backlash from his base in order to satisfy the Democratic base and also just get him you know concerned with this thing and distract him because he has such narrow bandwidth and you know make sure he's not focusing on, on anything else and get, you know trying to force him into doing something stupid. Um, but – Let's leave that there. Yeah, I guess yeah, we don't have time to debate that. Let me just say something really quick because now you got me riled up on that. So I'll, like, <laughs> I'll limit it to like 30 seconds or something. Um, so the reason why I think that Tulsi's present vote was the appropriate vote is because I too think that there is some stuff in the impeachment articles and the overall impeachment process which does obviously reflect badly on Trump. The idea that he would have even mentioned Biden on that phone call was obviously stupid and self-defeating and maybe even corrupt, right? Um, but the whole question in terms of impeachment is does it rise to the level of a high crime and misdemeanor? And in addition, how are the impeachment articles actually drafted? So leave the strategic question aside. I think it's an open open issue. We don't know how it's going to affect the 2020 election or if it will affect it at all. Maybe people, people have forgotten. Maybe you know he'll have you know dropped an atomic bomb somewhere and it will seem like distant history. Um, but – if you read the impeachment articles and then you read the supplementary report by the House Judiciary Committee, which almost no one seems to have read, which I have, and I'm actually writing a piece on this now, a lot of the implications of what's asserted in that in those articles are really ominous, and they go well beyond just reproaching Trump for mentioning Biden on the phone call. Right? They basically say that Trump defied what is termed official U.S. foreign policy, as if Trump doesn't have a democratic mandate to craft foreign policy as he wishes, and if you don't like it, you can vote him out. Rather than elevating these national security state bureaucrats as somehow like the guardians of official foreign policy, and also there's a lot of Cold War hysterics embedded in there. Like they 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 cite um, this uh, Trump official actually who says we're fighting you military aid to Ukraine is so important because we have to fight Russia there, so we don't have to fight them here, as if Russia's planning on invading the U.S. <laughs> and all that got basically inserted. 
by inference into the articles of impeachment. And on top of that, you know, there, there's a there's a provision in the impeachment articles that got ignored, which is saying that Trump's solicitation of foreign interference is consistent with his prior solicitations of foreign interference. And in the House Judiciary Committee report, that prior solicitation is defined as all the Russiagate stuff that's been litigated endlessly. So they ended up smuggling that into the articles of impeachment too. And you know my views on that. Um, so like a, a it, this wasn't a narrowly tailored impeachment that was simply about Trump mentioning a political rival. It was infused with all kinds of unchallenged militaristic Cold War hysterical assumptions that now that they've been ratified and now that they're, they're going to be embedded in the fabric of American governance for all of U.S. history has some pretty troubling implications. And I feel like that's been glossed over, which is why – Voting present, meaning you're rebuking both Trump and this pretty deranged impeachment process, seems to me the right balance to strike. Okay, uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, perhaps uh, sometime down the road, if the impeachment uh, articles, whatever, ever get sent to the Senate, we can <laughs> return and uh, debate the wisdom of what is happening. Um, but you'll have the last word there. So, uh, Michael Tracy, thank you for coming on and talking about uh, Representative Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, so do you want to mention some places people can find your stuff online? Yeah, well, of course, it all goes out on Twitter. I'm Tracy, so feel free to troll me. And I will troll you right back. Maybe. <laughs> Probably not. Um, yeah, I, I write for different publications. Um, and it all, it basically, it's basically all there, podcasts and YouTube and all that. So that's the best – that's the central locus of my output. Mm -hmm. And you have a Patreon, right? I do, yeah. There's a Patreon. Um that you know, if you want to support the podcast and the tweeting and the YouTube and the writing that you're, uh, you're, you you feel free to give to, and I kindly thank everybody who who does give to that. It's uh, it's very helpful. Okay, we'll, we will include links to some of those things below. Uh, you know, I am on Twitter at uh, RACW, and you can also subscribe to this show or any blogging head show or all blogging head shows in iTunes. You can rate a review there if you uh, feel the spirit move you. Um, uh, so I think that is it. And uh, thank you for this uh, late night conversation, uh, Michael Tracy. And thank you to all of our viewers and listeners. And we'll see you again next time.